classics readable, relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. How's it going? It is great. It is crisp and chilly here. I'm in D.C. right now. The leaves are starting to turn. It feels like the perfect fall day to talk about a spooky read. I'm nervous because I <laughs> I don't like spooky things, but this story was just enough for me to handle. It wasn't too scary for me, so it was. It turned out okay. <laughs> <laughs> this story was like a micro story, even more than a short story, and that was helpful for me as somebody who also doesn't handle scary things very well. So today we're talking about horror story by Carmen Maria Machado, and we tossed around a couple other kind of more classic horror stories and authors to do for our October Short Story Club before we settled on this one, and reading a Machado story was your idea, and I'm so glad you suggested it. Yeah, I thought it would be fun for us to venture into a more contemporary short story because our last couple have been classics and I definitely wanted to read something by an author of color and I had read In the Dream House, which is Machado's memoir, and loved it. So I knew that her short stories were in abundance on the internet and that I would be able to handle them without getting nightmares. (laughs) So that's kind of why my brain went to Carmen Maria Machado. But And I know that you had read In the Dream House too and really enjoyed her work. Yeah, I loved In the Dream House. She's such a phenomenal writer. And I agree. Even though In the Dream House is a memoir, not a work of horror fiction, it has some horror elements. And I knew from reading that that the way Machado uses imagery and uses horror tropes would probably, again, be something that I could handle and something that I would enjoy discussing. And as much as I enjoy teaching things like Edgar Allan Poe, I wasn't really excited to revisit one of those stories right now. So something (laughs) new and fresh felt right. Yeah, I, I'm not ready to talk about the Mask of the Red Death oh. and all the rich people <laughs> partying while there's a plague going on. I wasn't ready for that. Yeah, yeah, we'll save that for maybe a couple years out from COVID. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, this is a tiny story, and we're definitely going to really break it down and get into, I guess, quote unquote, spoilers (laughs) for this one. So if you haven't read it yet, pause your podcast now, click the link in our show notes. It'll take five to 10 minutes to read this tiny story and then come back. But if you have read it, we'll give just a tiny summary and then kind of get into our reactions and analysis of horror story. So in this micro short story, 
A woman describes increasingly strange and eerie events happening in the home she shares with her wife. First, things start showing up where they don't belong, then disappearing entirely. There are disembodied noises, cracked windows, and alternate realities reflected in mirrors and hiding behind doorways. As the couple seeks answers to these hauntings, their relationship evolves into blame and paranoia directed towards each other. And then things just get even weirder. Yeah, I am excited to hear what you thought about this story. I really enjoyed it. For someone who really doesn't like horror, this felt like a a good entry point for me. The imagery, like you said, is stunning. I mean, it is spooky and a little scary, but I was just so, I don't know, I loved the imagery and something I really like about horror. Maybe the only thing I like about (laughs) horror is that horror writers are excellent at metaphor, so that definitely came through in this story. Oh, yes. I really enjoyed this story as well. I think one of my favorite parts is just how it begins so normal. Like (laughs) the first things she describes Mm -hmm. are so mundane. And I thought that was really interesting, the juxtaposition. Now there's a English teachery word. (laughs) It just means two things next to each other. Um, Of the title horror story. And then it started so small, a mysteriously clogged drain, a crack in the bedroom window was so compelling, like to to call it horror story and then start with things that happen to everyone all the time was really an ingenious way to suck me into this story. Yeah, I, for some reason, I just really latched latched onto the next paragraph because the spices went missing and it just gets progressively weirder from there. But the imagery that she uses with the saffron being missing and then her fingertips were colored a burnt orange and it wouldn't wash off. And I, for some reason, just really loved that. (laughs) I don't think I need an explanation or a reason why. I just really, really enjoyed the opening to the story and the imagery that she was using. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. Just her word choice, even the different types of spices that are so specific that she chooses to talk about going missing, like the marjoram and the custom poultry blend, and then the saffron. It's just, you can see, taste, and smell it from such simple language. And that is some expert writing. Yeah, nothing about this is flowery. I mean, it's descriptive, but like you said, it's basically a micro story. So it's two and a quarter pages printed out. And if that, and the sentences and the descriptions, they're tight. I mean, this is a really tight story, but she manages to do so much and make it so vivid with very little on page, which I always, I mean, that is, I think, that's always my favorite when authors can do that, when they can manage to say so much in few words. That's my jam. I love it. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm just glancing at the story again, and there's a great sentence a couple paragraphs down about the, the cat. It sounded like the cat 
until the cat disappeared. Then the padding continued, looping our bed like a satellite. Soft pod, but no longer comforting. Just so eerie in the simplest language. So let's talk a little bit more about the horror genre. I mean, I think it's, especially with a short story or a poem, titles are incredibly important and intentional because like we said, there's a lot packed into very little. So horror story as a title is really important. And right away, we're getting the signal that this is part of the horror genre. So let's talk a little bit about what a horror story is and how this fits in with that. Yeah, so I certainly don't consider myself an expert in the horror genre. It is not something I gravitate towards, but I have taught things like Frankenstein, which we're discussing next week, so this is kind of a great entry point into that. And part of teaching that is a discussion about like what does the horror genre do? Why do we seek out these stories? Some of us. Why do some of us seek out these stories? <laughs> why have they been with us for so long? Like why do humans like to scare each other? And horror according to just the basic definition is is just fiction whose purpose is to create feelings of fear, dread, repulsion, and terror. Which you hear that and you're like, okay, why do we do that? Why do we want to create feelings of fear, dread, repulsion, and terror? And I think there are lots of reasons, but what what are some of your initial thoughts on what horror is or what horror does? Mm. Well, I, I said earlier that I think all horror is metaphor. I don't think there's a horror story that doesn't have some sort of metaphor for something else in it. And so I think that fear definitely allows the reader to sort of unlock something and either make a realization about themselves or about the world that they wouldn't get without a strong emotional reaction or that that emotional reaction just increases their awareness of those themes or it's part of the journey of realizing what the author is trying to do. You need that fear and that dread in order to get there. But I also think, I mean, that's why horror films are super popular. People like that heart jumpy feeling. Some people, not me personally. <laughs> people like that heart jumping feeling of your like chest getting tight and your heart pounding and that heightened emotion some people really enjoy that feeling and I mean I think like anything reading I prefer to be comforted <laughs> but some people really like that like propulsive page turning feeling it's kind of like reading mystery or thriller you're after that experience yeah I I think you're so right I mean I think that good literary analysis to me is often focused on emotions and asking how the author created those emotions in my reading experience or in the audience. And so fear and dread and terror are huge emotions and seeing how the author is able to do that or how the story is able to do that is is really interesting. I, I also think there's an element of catharsis to horror stories, even though we typically talk about catharsis as an element in 
tragedies of like feeling that level of sadness or dread or terror, but knowing that you're safe and that there's kind of a an emotional release that happens there in that safe space seems true for horror. Although for some people, I think myself included, like it's hard to then retreat back into the safe space. Like the scariness lingers with me. Yeah. And I, I think there's probably also a power in feeling like you've conquered your fear Mm. when you read something and you're scared, but then it turns out okay. Or you read something scary and you feel like, well, I've experienced it on the page, so I could handle it in real life, or it's not going to happen in real life. But there's maybe an element of bravery and confidence to it that I, that's not, not where I get my bravery and confidence. I, I'm too sensitive for the horror genre. Yeah. But I think there's that element as well. I think all of this is really, really interesting. I have actually read a handful of horror novels recently, mostly because they happened to be on the Aspen submissions list. And so I had to, (laughs) and I found them kind of following a specific vein. And I'm going to, I'm going to save that for a little bit later, but I have been kind of thinking about contemporary horror novels and maybe how the genre is changing And like I said, I'm not an expert on classic horror, so I don't feel like I have as fully formed of an opinion on this as I would like to, but it's interesting to me. I do think that classic horror tends to really focus on humans' fear of the unknown. And I think that's actually a kind of dangerous feeling to manipulate and play with. Like we see a lot of fear being stoked in the political arena of trying to convince us that we should be scared of people who are different from us or things that are unfamiliar to us. And I found this quote from H.P. Lovecraft, who is a horror novelist and a incredibly racist person and writer, and, and he said, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. And, and that's what he was playing with in his fiction, but also clearly influenced his political views as well. And like I said, I think that's kind of dangerous, but I'm wondering if now horror is being reclaimed by authors who aren't straight white men, and reworked to show a different kind of horror story. The the fear of the known. Yes. Yeah, that's such a good way to put it. Totally, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about The City We Became because it's written in direct response to Lovecraft, and although I wouldn't necessarily call The City We Became by N.K. Jemisin horror, it does have terrifying elements it does have some horror elements but it's it's about the fear of people you know and things that you know exist like racism but that are unseen so the the fear of the unseen but the known like we know this thing exists but we can't always see it happening That seems to be more where horror is sitting right now. And yeah, I'm definitely 
here for it, even though I'm pretty picky about which which books I pick up that are under that genre. Yeah, same. That's such a good way to describe it. And I mean, I, I think that that has been in some horror fiction, particularly maybe gothic horror that's often written by white women historically. But that idea of knowing something to be true and not being believed or not being able to articulate exactly what is happening to you, that feeling is, I think, familiar to a lot of people who have been marginalized in various ways. And seeing it play out on the page is scary, but in a in a very different way from the jumpy, scary that I have a hard time with. It is kind of cathartic to see on the page people triumph over being gaslit or being ignored. Yeah. I mean, the whole time you were talking about that, I was like gaslighting. Yes. <laughs> which is sort of a common, more common term in our lexicon, but originated with what we could argue is a horror film. Oh, I so, think it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like any genre, I think horror has subgenres. So you kind of have like the monster horror, which we'll talk about more with Frankenstein, where there's this really tangible creature that's terrifying. And then I think you have maybe uh, like situational horror, which might be sort of something like apocalyptic or like a situation that's happening that's really terrible. And then I think there's the psychological horror, which might have some supernatural elements, or it's just truly horror of the mind. And of those, I'm terrified by all of them, but (laughs) I think probably the psychological horror, if it crosses over with like thriller and mystery, I'm a little bit more inclined to read that. But I think that's, I mean, that's totally where gaslighting fits in. The movie that we're talking about, Gaslight, is I think it's totally worth watching to see where the origin of the name came from. And I think it's a great, spooky, creepy fall watch. I think it was at the 30s or 40s. I love classic movies, so I I really um, enjoy that. But it is worth watching. And then I, I think that gaslighting is so terrifying. And to see it in the horror genre and, yeah, to see people triumph over it is really satisfying for sure. It is. There's definitely an element. I I think actually the story we read, Horror Story, would pair well with the movie Gaslight. They're quite different, but just that unsettled feeling that comes with your space and what should be stable verging into instability. Thinking you put something one place and finding it someplace else there isn't an, an element of horror there in either the feeling like something is invading my space or my mind is misremembering things. And both of those options are scary and having to kind of alternate between is it this or that, but which one's even better or safer, that definitely like gets my blood racing a little bit. Yeah, and then feeling like you can't escape the situation comes up in here too. Yes. Where it's like, well, I'm already committed to this. They say the landlord rented us this 
haunted house and we don't have money to move. So feeling like you're trapped in your situation and you can't get out of it is, I think, also kind of files under that a little bit. And I think this is probably a good spot for us to talk about the metaphor here and what we think Machado might be getting at with horror story. I was, I definitely was informed by reading in the dream house though, when I read this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wasn't sure. So this story was published in 2015. So I wasn't sure like exactly when in her life timeline, this story fell into, but I agree that having read in the dream house, which is about an abusive relationship certainly, certainly impacts my reading of this story. And and in this story, the two women start to not necessarily turn on each other, but doubt each other and blame each other for what they're experiencing in the house. And that, as a reader, as an outside observer, I found really interesting because at times I was like, yes, your partner probably is doing this to you. Your wife probably is doing this to you. And at other times I would think, no, don't turn on each other. <laughs> Come together mm-hmm. and figure it out. That alternating pulling back and forth was was fascinating. I was thinking even the how the beginning started out with the small things that you notice, that it sounded to me like not just in abusive relationships, but in relationships where you're having problems, of course it starts small and then gets bigger and bigger as things either go unaddressed or, you know, buried deep. And so it says um, they crossed paths in the hallway when they heard different noises and they sort of like went to investigate and it says, thank goodness we crossed paths. Otherwise, who knows what have, would have been waiting for us in those cramped orifices of the house. But that only occurred to me later. At the time, we accused and accused, then agreed to not talk about it anymore. And it just mm-hmm. seems like the metaphor, they have this house. Slowly, more and more things are happening. But they, at first push it down and they don't talk about it. And then as it gets worse and worse, they agree to get outside help. But that doesn't help and then they think about leaving but then they feel stuck and it just seems like the progression of their relationship is matching this progression of the haunted house getting scarier and scarier so I like I said though that's partly informed by what I read from her unique memoir of an abusive relationship and kind of thinking that surely this is in relation oh absolutely I also found that line about being called to different parts of the house and crossing paths to be really attention-grabbing. And I also thought it was fascinating how when they ask each other to investigate different sounds, they use terms of endearment. Love, did you hear that sound in the basement? Darling, did you hear that sound in the attic? And that it felt almost forced terms of endearment as things are crumbling around them. And then the the very last line, and we love short stories with a good last line here at Not Appearings. 
The very last line after the end of the story where there's this really strange, you don't know if it's a hallucination or if it's a ghost or what kind of situation is going on. But the narrator closes her eyes, opens them. Her wife is standing there. And the last line is, after that, we were alone together. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the alone together is such a such a classic way to describe a broken relationship where you're lonely even though you're in this partnership. And also, it's so eerie because they have all of these things moving around the house with them and they have these spirits in the house and yet they encounter each other and then saying we were alone together. It seems like all of these things have left them and they have to now, they don't have the distractions of the house. They have to deal with just the two of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that line because I think that if you read it outside of the context of the story, we were alone together could be nice, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then, but in the context of the story, right, and especially like with the, the comma there, we were alone together, it has more of that feeling of, of dread. And it, it connects, I think, back to an earlier conversation they have where the narrator's wife says, I, I can't handle this. I just want to live my life. And the narrator says, but our life is here. And that disconnect between one person saying my life and the other saying our life and how they are trapped. And I think that's another kind of classic horror element is typically there are other interpersonal things going on. And so a question that the reader can ask is, is the scary part the monster or is the scary part the people? Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, a really common, I don't know if it's a trope, but I think that's a common theme in horror is that there are these scary things happening, but what's the scariest is humans dealing with other humans. Yes. And we will talk about that a lot with Frankenstein. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, Well, should we go on to pairings? (laughs) Yeah, I I think so. I I think that this is a story that, you know, with our English nerd brains, we could go line by line and talk about every little thing. But I think we should go on, on to some pairings, offer some other kind of spooky reading all of which are things that we've read and could handle. So this is like spooky reading for for wimps. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but if you haven't yet, I would definitely recommend picking up some Carmen Maria Machado stories. There are tons available online, and we can link to the page we found that aggregated and collected all of her short stories that are available online. But then her collection, Her Body and Other Parties, is also fantastic. If you're looking for some eerie stories to read this fall, that one is one I highly recommend. Well, I feel like maybe it's worth another mention that we both did love her memoir, In the Dream House. So highly recommend picking that one up. And I 
listened to it on audio and really liked it. I think that you read it on Oh, paper. really? I did, yeah. I did read it on paper, and I can't imagine actually listening to it on audio. Did she narrate it? She did, yes. And yeah, I think... There are just lots of little, like, footnotes and asides and, and mm-hmm. things, but... I'm sure, especially with her narrating it, she knew how she wanted it done, of course. Yeah, definitely. And there was a bit of a theatrical element to it. There, I think some of the structures within it were written a little bit play-like or screenplay-like, and so that translated well to audio. But um, I I mean, I probably would have recognized maybe some more uh, or admired the form more on paper because it is it written in a really unique way. Yeah, each chapter is like taking on the styles and conventions of a different genre. So if you like thinking about tropes and genres, this is a great one. But it's very just compulsively readable, even if that's not something you're interested in. And also I found this book to be strangely hopeful. Like it it for how difficult of a subject it tackles and for how many hard moments there are this one does have a hopeful end and so it's not it's not bleak by any means I don't think so that's our bonus recommendation (laughs) yes Sarah what would you like to pair with horror story okay my pairings are gonna focus on what we talked about earlier Chelsea about the fear of the known and authors who might be um, kind of reclaiming the horror genre. So they, some of them are very much connected to the structure of horror story, but others are just horror books that I have recently read and loved. So the first is The Brightlands by John Fram. And this is a book about a gay man in his 20s who gets a desperate text from his teen brother who is still living at home in Texas and is a football star. And he tells his older brother who had escaped this small Texas town and its homophobia and ostracization, you know, I I need help. I don't want to be here anymore. And so his brother goes back to his small town to kind of try and help his brother rescue him from this small town and its prejudices and his brother disappears and this book is truly horror it is scary and it's kind of supernatural horror but it it's that horror as metaphor that you mentioned Chelsea about homophobia and toxic masculinity of Not necessarily all small towns. I don't think this book generalizes, but toxic masculinity of these very kind of patriarchal societies and societies that where young men are lifted up and put on a pedestal for their performance of masculinity. So this book takes place at like a football town. I thought it was really well done. I think this is John Fram's debut and it it felt like a debut uh, in some ways, but that is The Bright Lands. And it was scary (laughs) in multiple ways. 
That's good. I think that I know that there are at least several listeners who will be excited to pick up something scary. So that sounds good. Yes. Yeah. What's your first pairing? I have all short story collections. Wow. I love that. Which we, I mean, we've said before, we're not big short story readers, but I find that especially when I'm reading scary stuff, a short story is nice because it's bite-sized. So I can read it in the span of maybe 30 minutes, shorter, longer, and be done with it and decide like that's enough scary stuff for me for the week or the month. (laughs) And then if I can handle a little bit more, I can go back to it later. But this first one, while the stories are scary, it's not too scary. I was able to listen to this one on audio, which I highly recommend because it is a collection with multiple different authors. And so it has several different narrators as well. This collection is His Hideous Heart. It is collected and edited by Dahlia Adler, but it features stories by prominent young adult authors like Lamar Giles, for example. And this is a collection of short stories that are YA contemporary adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe. So it's really fun, especially if you're familiar with Edgar Allan Poe's short stories, which many of us are from our middle school or high school reading days. And this collection updates them. I think that they're all contemporary retellings. Actually, some of them might be historical, but they are retold in some way. There are a variety of characters in here featuring lots of different cultures and sexualities. And it's it does what YA does best, I think, in creating a diverse collection of experiences and updating those classic stories with just a better representation of what the world is like now. So that is His Hideous Heart by Dahlia Adler and several other authors. So... The first half of the book is the retellings, and then the original stories are also included in the book. So you can flip back and forth to compare them one against the other. Or like since I listened to it, I was familiar enough with the post stories, I didn't feel like I needed to keep going with those. But those were in the audiobook as well. So I just listened to the adaptations, but it was a really, really fun collection, and I think it's so perfect for spooky October vibes. I have never heard of that, and it sounds like it ought to be a classroom staple as well. I think it would be excellent in the classroom. I think that reading one story and comparing it against the other would not only be an excellent literary exercise, but would really, really get kids hooked. So yeah, I think it would be an excellent one for the classroom. I love that. My second pairing is When No One Is Watching by Alyssa Cole, and we talked about this in our anticipated fall books. Have you gotten around to reading it yet, Chelsea? I have it downloaded. I started it, but I just can't handle anything scary right now. And I know, I I don't know if it's too scary, but I don't even know if I can do mystery at this moment. Sometimes I just like can't even do a heart-pounding mystery. So I would really like to read it soon, though. Maybe by the time that this episode comes out, I'll have read it. Yeah, and I I think that's completely, completely understandable. I 
thought this book was scary because of how real it is. I mean, I've seen some readers who read more thriller than I do say that this book wasn't as thrillery, heart-pounding as they wanted it to be. To me, this book felt scary because of its reality. So it's about Sydney, who is a young woman who's recently moved back to Brooklyn to take care of her sick mother. She's recently divorced, and that plays a, a prominent role in kind of her her psyche and, and where she is emotionally at the start of the story. And Sydney is black, and she grew up in this historically black neighborhood in, in Brooklyn. And at the start of the story, she goes on this historic home tour of Brooklyn. And the tour guide is telling the attendees about all of the famous prominent people who lived in all of these beautiful brownstones. And she's only talking about white people from like a hundred plus years ago. And Sydney keeps chiming in with who lives in the homes now or, you know, the, the famous and prominent black Americans who are who've inhabited these homes. And the tour guide tells her, well, you know, if that's the kind of information you want in your tour, you should just start your own. And so she goes about starting her own and she gets the assistance of a white man who's recently bought a home in her neighborhood named Theo. And the two of them go about compiling this tour. And as they do, they're starting to realize that maybe the gentrification that's happening in this Brooklyn neighborhood and the number of white families moving in is not purely, well, it's just more insidious than they initially thought. And they go about kind of uncovering those mysteries. And it's just a great example of thriller, mystery, horror that's tackling contemporary social issues in a really smart way. And like I said, I found this scary because the, it just, it felt so, so real and so important. Alyssa Cole is one of my favorite authors, but I've only read her romance and this thriller is a departure for her genre wise. So I'm, I'm very excited to read it. I think that I'll be able to get to it soon, but I definitely need to be in the right mental and emotional space for it. <laughs> totally. And I, I I, do think that this is one, and I don't think this is a spoiler to say, <laughs> this is one that you root for the characters to overcome and you won't be totally disappointed in that, even though there are hard and sad things and scary things throughout. Okay, good. Maybe I can pick it up sooner than I thought then. <laughs> no pressure. You read all the cozy <laughs> books you want to right now. This next one that I have to talk about is Far From Cozy. <laughs> the next short story collection that I have on this list is Things We Lost in the Fire. And it is by Mariana Enriquez. It is translated by Megan McDowell. Enriquez is an Argentinian author. And so if you're looking for a work in translation plus something scary, this is the way to go. So I read this and I can't say that it was like an enjoyable reading experience because the stories are 
scary, but they're also grotesque. I would say that this isn't necessarily like the jump scare kind of horror. It's more like the gross and the macabre kind of horror. I am just going to read a review from Roxanne Gay because, of course, she puts it (laughs) far better than I ever could. Roxanne Gay says that this is quite a compelling collection of short stories, quiet, gothic horrors, really, that exemplify the complexities, the small and great tragedies of the human condition. Quite a sharp edge in these stories, and she has a lot to say about women, girls trying to be in the world, the confines of bad marriages, the ravages of poverty and addiction. Many of these stories exemplify what good horror stories are supposed to do. So that is Things We Lost in the Fire by Mariana Enriquez. Mm, that sounds good. And I completely agree that Roxanne Gay just writes the best reviews. They're so good. I mean, witty and sharp and to the point, and I trust her taste. So, yeah. Yeah. Also, I'll just say I love that she posts her reviews on Goodreads. Like, <laughs> that, so you can right. find them so easily when you're looking at books. It's so helpful. Agreed. All right. My final pairing is one I basically just finished. It is Mexican Gothic by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. And this book was all over Bookstagram. I think it's been a huge hit, which is awesome. And it also has such a beautiful cover. Just very very photogenic book. And this one is about a young woman named Noemi who gets a letter from her cousin, Catalina. Basically, her cousin has recently gotten married. She's moved from Mexico City, where Noemi lives, to this much more remote, rural part of Mexico. And her new husband is... English, and his family has had this very kind of gothic English estate in this remote part of Mexico for many generations. They've also owned a silver mine there, and they've become kind of wealthy, wealthy English people living in Mexico, but very much remote and away from the community They've isolated themselves, which is a great construct for a horror novel. So Noemi goes to help her cousin. Her cousin in this letter has said that he's poisoning her, that he is kind of a mystery, and that that she's been very ill and and begging Noemi for help. And, and Noemi is such a great character. She is flirtatious and fiery and confident, and she goes into this house that is very rigid patriarchy and she is not subdued and refuses to be submissive to this family and it is just great gothic horror it totally kept me on my toes I loved the characters I loved the descriptions of the house and the setting I loved all of the kind of creepy characters and you know the the silent housekeepers and (laughs) all of the stuff that's great in gothic fiction at first to me the twist was like a little much and I was explaining it to Miles my husband and I was like this twist I don't know and I was telling him all about it and he was like 
what don't you like about that? It sounds awesome. And so I, I settled back into being like, okay, maybe this was, maybe <laughs> I just had one thing in mind and she did something even better than what I had in mind. So I think it's grown on me even the more I've thought about it. So it's definitely, it's definitely true horror, very much in the gothic vein, as the title would suggest. So if you like things like Rebecca and Jane Eyre, then you've got to try Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. I had that one downloaded. I started listening to it over summer, but I just ended up not having the time to listen to it. So I thought, oh, I'll save it for fall. So I just downloaded it like two days ago, and I'm really excited to listen to the audiobook because the narrator is excellent. Oh, good to know. Yeah, I read this one in paper because I had to have that pretty cover. (laughs) Um, It is really pretty. It's so pretty. But I will be super excited to talk to you about that twist when you get there. I'll text you as soon as I I get to that part. All right. What's your final pairing, Chelsea? I have one more short story collection that comes from a bunch of young adult authors. I think that that If you're looking for something that is spooky but not too scary, that's a really good way to go is the young adult genre. Even though there's some YA horror that is incredibly scary, I just think it tends to be a little bit of a lighter touch. Or maybe because the characters are younger, Mm. I feel that necessary distance where it's not too scary for me. So I really, really love the short story collections from Jessica Spotswood. She has several that she's collected and edited, and they're all feminist and feature a group of diverse authors telling stories. So I think one of them is The Tyranny of Petticoats, and another one might even be called Radical Feminists or something. I'll link to the other collections in the show notes because they're all really fun. But I really like those short stories. And Tessa Sharp and Jessica Spotswood have edited a collection of 15 Tales of Women and Witchcraft called Toil and Trouble. And I thought about recommending this for our Crucible episode, but it just didn't totally fit. So this feels like a good spot to recommend it as a spooky October read. So... This is an anthology of 15 stories, and like I said, a bunch of authors who come from diverse backgrounds and experiences, and thus the characters do as well. So there are stories about witches in here, like a bruja's traditional love spell with unexpected results, a witch who has healing hands, but... Then when she ignores her attraction to another witch, bad things happen. And just all of these like spooky stories that are sometimes like they're different settings. So they might be some modern, some historical, but they're definitely updated themes. So I think that this one, I don't think there's going to be any horror in here, but it does have those spooky kind of Halloween-esque vibes. So that's Toil and Trouble, 15 Tales of Women and Witchcraft, and it's edited by Tess Sharp and Jessica Spotswood, but there are a bunch of well-known young adult authors with short stories in that collection. That sounds 
so good. I love witchy books in October, as we've discussed. And so maybe <laughs> I'll have to pick that one up. It's really fun. And I think that you would really enjoy the other collections as well. And just like His Hideous Heart, I think that these collections are excellent for the classroom. Short stories work so well in the classroom and it's really nice to have something updated that isn't just the telltale heart but has those kind of spooky elements that really get kids hooked so the all of the jessica spotswood collections would be great classroom books whether for teaching or just handing off to kids all right well i'm not sure how much more horror fiction i'm going to be reading this fall (laughs) other than what we've already discussed, and of course, Frankenstein. But I do think that I hope we've given our listeners some some good options for spooky season, if that's your current reading mood. I agree. And of course, we can't wait to hear what you all thought of Horror Story or any of the pairings that we talked about today. And if you are enjoying the show, a really great way to support novel pairings is by sharing us in your Instagram stories or on Facebook or Twitter, wherever your social network is, to let your friends know that you've been listening. And while you're there, you can follow us at Novel Pairings Pod on Instagram or Novel Pairings on Twitter for news and announcements and bonus book recommendations. We also have a Facebook page, but we're not very active on there. I'll make sure I put a link in the show notes for anyone who has Facebook, but not any of the other platforms. And of course, if you keep spreading the word about novel pairings by just telling your friends, that is amazing. That's exactly what we want to hear. And writing a review on Apple Podcasts would be the cherry on top. Thank you to Michelle Timmons for her assistance and to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next week, we'll be back with a little bit more horror with an episode about Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a